going to be gone uh, for a couple of days, and um, so we do want you to continue to pray for those that will be traveling, and uh, pray for those that are sick. We want to ask the Lord to help them. I want to turn tonight to the book of Revelation, and I thought that I was finished with this series, but I'm not. And so I'm going to give you one more tonight. And I didn't say only one more. I just said one more. Somebody said one time, said something about when we'd be singing, we'd say, let's sing it one more time, and we'd sing it three more times. So we didn't say, let's just sing it one more time. We can sing it one more time and one more time and one more time. Hallelujah. So, I'm going to add one more lesson to this series tonight. I started thinking about it and realized that really, you know, it, it took so many weeks, even months, to cover all seven churches. And there are some things that we hopefully pulled from all of that. But being spread out over that amount of time, it's hard then to remember from week to week and month to month the ground that we've covered, the points that we've made. So we're going to try to bring it all together tonight. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 11, Revelation 1, verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Now, that should have elicited some amens. So I'll try it again. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Yeah, that's better. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And then skipping down to verse 19, reading verses 19 and 20, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And so tonight, we are once again going to look at the lessons from the seven churches, and this will be our summary lesson, where we just go back and try to pull the important points as much as possible, and I'll explain more in just a moment. But for right now, would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands, lift your voices, and ask the Lord to help us, ask the Lord to talk to us.
ask him to give me strength tonight. I need his touch. I need his healing tonight. And I know that he is able. Let's talk to the Lord together, everyone. Let's cry out to him right now. Jesus. Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Let's worship Him one more time, everyone. Let's worship the Lord together. Let's praise Him together before we're seated. Everybody, come on, let's, let's lift our voices tonight. Let's lift our voices. We've been a little bit too subdued all night tonight. Let's reach out. Let's, let's give it a little bit more effort tonight. We want the Holy Ghost to move. We've got people need the Holy Ghost. Come on, let's reach out to God, everybody. Praise God. Amen, 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 amen. I really, really, really need your help tonight. Will you help me? All right. And I hope the rest of you will as well. You may be seated. And so, as I said, tonight we are really just looking at a summary. And there are some reasons why I feel that is important for this series of studies. So let me, let me just review a couple of things before I get into my purpose for doing this particular lesson tonight. First of all, I want to remind you that the things that are written in the book of Revelation are written and addressed first to these seven churches. Everything that is in the book of Revelation was written first to them. Not just these letters, but everything that was there was also addressed to them. And if you'll note from our text in verse number 19, that the Lord told the Apostle John that I want you to write the things which you have seen, past tense, and the things which are, present tense, and the things which shall be hereafter, future tense. And we have to have that understanding of the book of Revelation before we can ever hope to comprehend anything within its pages. So there are the, the things which John had already seen. And then there were the things which Jesus said which are, that is, at the time of this writing, at the time of the New Testament. And then the things which shall be hereafter, of course, is a reference to the church from that time going forward, even until eternity. 
Therefore, the things that are found in this book, including and especially, especially what's in the letters of, uh, that's written to these seven churches, applies not just to those churches, but to every true church of the living God. Now, are you going to help me tonight? I need you to help me tonight. It applies to every true church, not just to the church at Ephesus, not just to the church at Smyrna, not just to the church at Pergamos or Thyatira or Sardis or Philadelphia or Laodicea. It applies to Olathe. It applies to every church. And we need to understand that. Now, some things that I have pointed out to you that I would just remind you, Jesus stated in our text that there were these seven stars. He said the seven stars are the seven angels of the church. Understand that that term is not referencing cherubim or seraphim. It's not referencing winged creatures with halos and harps. The Greek word that is used here is angelos. Angelos means messenger. And so what Jesus said was the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. And the messenger of the church, and, and, and notice the way it's stated because when he begins each letter, he says unto the messenger of the church in Ephesus unto the messenger of the church in Smyrna. Right? He didn't, he didn't make that plural. He was very specific. There is one messenger to each church. Doesn't mean that the church can't get messages other ways, but there is one chosen by God to be the messenger to that assembly. And therefore, that is the pastor of that church. Then he goes on to say that the seven golden candlesticks are the churches because the church is supposed to be a source of light. It's supposed to be a source of light. Now, now look, I'm going to put in a shameless plug right now. Starting this Thursday, we're beginning a new series on Face the Truth. We're going to be talking a lot about light and darkness. And you want to hear it. You want to hear it. The church is called to be light. We're not called to blend in to the darkness of this world. We're not called to be like this world. We are called to stand out. This is what the church is. If you've got a candlestick and that candle is burning, you're going to notice that in the darkness. It's going to call attention to itself. 
Because darkness is not permitted where light exists. Right? I don't care how dark it is. All it takes is a little light. And there's no darkness where that light is. Darkness never extinguishes light. But light always dispels darkness. And the only way that the church can compromise and start blending with the church, with, with the world is if we lose the light. And so it's important that we understand that's our calling as a church. I actually remember some years ago a quote-unquote Christian rock group put out an album. They, they, I think the title of the album, if I remember correctly, was Sheep in Wolves' Clothing. Now, we've, we've often talked about a wolf in sheep's clothing. They claim that they were sheep in wolves' clothing. That they were a part of God's flock. They just looked like the wolves out there. Well, I'm going to tell you, if you really try to carry that application very far at all, there is no sheep that's going to be comfortable around another sheep who looks like a wolf. God doesn't want us wearing wolves' clothing. He wants us to look like and act like and be his sheep. So we don't want to take on the world. That's another lesson for another time. The other thing that you need to notice is that the Lord says, and this is not a part of our text, but it was in the verses we read in some of the early lessons, that he was walking in the midst of these candlesticks. Can I tell you, whether we're worshiping him tonight or not, he's here. Whether we feel him tonight or not, he's here. He's walking in the midst of this church. And he's examining whether we're worshiping him or not. Whether we're paying attention to him or not. Whether we are focused on him or not. The Lord is walking in the midst of the church. Now, I want to ask you, what, how would you respond right now if the Lord somehow made himself visible and you saw him walking in this church? What would your worship be like then? Well, whether you see him or not, he's here. And he deserves the same worship, seen or unseen. In fact, he said, blessed are they that have seen and believed, but more blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. All right. So let me get, let me get down to what I'm trying to say tonight. As I've pointed out to you, there were more than seven churches that were in existence 
during the time of this writing. I mean, there was the church at Rome. There was the church at Corinth. There was the church at Galatia. The church at Philippi. The church at Colossae. Right? I mean, these are churches that we know of that existed because Paul wrote letters to them. But they're not included in this list. So this list was not supposed to be an exclusive list that these are all the churches that there are. Out of all of the churches that existed, Thessalonica, others, out of all of the churches that existed, the Lord chose seven of them to speak to directly. Now, why seven? Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now, why did God rest on the seventh day? Was it because God was tired? No, it was because God was finished. On the seventh day, everything was completed. Seven has always been, some people say that's God's perfect number. Well, I can agree with that if you've got a biblical definition of perfect. Because the biblical definition of perfect is complete or entire. It's not flawless. The way we use the word perfect today is we say, you know, that, well, that, they did a perfect job. We mean it was a flawless job. And therefore, we say there's nobody on earth that's perfect. Because none of us are flawless. However, the Lord commanded us to be perfect. But he was not commanding us to be flawless. When he used the word perfect, he used it differently than we use it. And his definition of this word was to be complete. To have everything that you need. To be mature. A perfect seven-month-old is quite different from a perfect seven-year-old. Who is quite different from a perfect 70-year-old. Right? But each of them can be a perfect specimen of health at their age or a perfect specimen of intelligence at their age and yet differ from one another. Because perfection, biblically, is not flawlessness. It's completion. And that's why I had Brother Nelson read these scriptures. Everything was complete on the seventh day. And so here's what I've said from the beginning of this series, that when you start studying these seven churches and you look at the positives and the negatives that are addressed within these seven churches, you get an idea of God's concept of the perfect or complete church. Are you with me? If you'll do the things that God commended in these churches 
and abstain from the things which God condemned about these churches, then you become the perfect or complete church. And so that's why I say I feel like it is needful because we spent months talking about, okay, here's what God liked about this church. Here's what he didn't like about that church. And now it's been months since we talked about some of those churches and we really don't have a complete picture in our minds. It's, it's almost like the poem I've used in Africa many times and I don't have that with me to read it or I would, but the poem tells the story of some blind men who were led to an elephant. And as they reached out to feel the elephant, each of them felt a different part. One felt his tail and said the elephant is like a vine. That's all he felt. One felt his leg and said the elephant is like a tree. One felt his side and said, oh, the elephant is like a solid wall. One felt his ear and said the elephant is like a fan that you hold to create a breeze. One felt his trunk and said, oh, the elephant is like a massive rope. You see, none of them were really wrong. But none of them had the complete picture. And until you've got the complete picture, you really don't know what an elephant would be like. And so this is what I'm trying to tell you, that what we've done is we've identified the rope and the wall and the fan, but it's been so far apart. What I want to do tonight is describe the whole elephant for you. So I will tell you that as you look at these letters, you'll notice that each of the letters opens with the phrase, I know your works. So whether they were good or bad, God knew their works. And each of them contained the same promise to him that overcometh. To every church, God said, if you'll overcome, there may be flaws, there may be weaknesses, there may be problems, but if you'll overcome those things, I've got a reward. And every one of these letters ends with a plea. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Not just to this church, but he's saying it to the churches. That includes us. All right, so, so let's, let's look at this. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to just try to, to go church by church tonight. So why don't, you, why don't you follow along in your Bibles, and I won't, because I don't have enough time to read the, the letters, all right? But what I want to do is just try to bring from your remembrance, and if anybody's listening tonight, whether in person or online, and you haven't heard all of the lessons, go to our website. They're all there. 
They're all available. The things that I'm saying tonight about these churches, I don't have time to go back and read every verse. So you're just going to have to take my word for it tonight. But go back and listen to the lesson and you'll see where I brought that out from the scripture. All right, is everybody with me? So let's start with the church at Ephesus. And, and in fact, let me, let me back up. Let's start with the things we need to avoid. Not just with the church, but we want to look at the negatives tonight. We want to start with the things that God condemned in these churches. So that we know what we need to avoid in our lives. So first, before we get to any of the commendation, we're going to look at the condemnation. The things God condemned. And let's start with Ephesus. With Ephesus, what the Lord found wrong with the church at Ephesus was that they had left their first love. Ephesus had a relationship problem. They didn't have a religion problem. Again, I don't have time to, to go back and prove all of this. They didn't have a religion problem. And, and listen to me, saints. I see this a lot. Even in apostolic churches. Where there's much more about the religion than there is about the relationship. This is why so many folks get so offended at holiness standards and, and, and resent it is because it's just preached really as religion. You have to do this. You have to dress this way. You have to look like this. You, you, and, and that's the way it's presented. But I want to tell you, if you'll develop a relationship with Jesus, When you really have a real relationship with him, then there are things that you do not because you have to, but because you love him so much. You want to make him happy. You love him so much. You don't want to do things that you know make him unhappy. That's relationship, not religion. Ephesus had religion down pat, but they did not have a relationship. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Mm. This is the first and great commandment. Yes. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I'm telling you tonight, if we learn anything at all about a perfect church, a complete church, we've got to learn the fact that everything we do must be built upon a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about looking the part. It's not about acting the part. It's about having a relationship with him. And letting that relationship generate how we look and how we act. Right, right, right. Yes. In fact, a relationship with him, a right relationship with him, will also create a right relationship with our brothers and our sisters. For John put it this way, how can you love God whom you have not seen? 
if you hate your brother whom you have seen. I'm telling you, when you have a real relationship with him, when you really fall in love with him, then you fall in love with his word. You fall in love with his law. You fall in love with his people. Oh, hallelujah. I may not get all the summary done tonight. We may have to have a part two of the summary. And then we may have to come back on part three and give a summary of the summary so we can get it all in one night. I don't know. Smyrna, the second church, the church at Smyrna. Now, here's the thing about Smyrna is that the Lord let them know you're going to have to be crushed. You're going to have to be crushed. It's the only way you're going to be saved, Smyrna. Saints, we, we don't like times of crushing. In fact, I'm going to tell you, the temptation is ever-present that when our world starts falling apart, we start saying, God, why are you mad at me? Can I get a witness? God, why, why, why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this. Why are you doing this to the person that, that I love? Why are you doing this to the person that loves you? They don't deserve this. But I want to tell you, there's something that God taught us through Smyrna is that there are some people that it just requires the crushing to save them. But listen to me. If they'll be saved through the crushing, then God's not angry and he's not mistreating them. To save them is the greatest thing he could do. And I, I want you to know that I have told God many times, God, if you've got to crush me for me to be saved, bring on the crushing, that I don't want to be lost. God's doing you a favor if he crushes you. Oh, I feel like saying that again. It's not pleasant. It's not easy. But when he does it, he does it because he loves you. And he's trying to get some impurity out of you. First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. Now, 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 now please, church, don't, don't look at this. It's a lengthy passage. Don't look at this like a bedtime story. And let your mind go in and out while he's reading this to you. Pay attention to what Paul's saying. There's only one foundation, that's Jesus Christ. But he said, you better watch what you build on that foundation. So he's talking to people that are saved. And he's really talking about the way we live our lives. The way we live is how we build on the foundation. Right. Now he said, if any man builds on this foundation, gold, silver, 
precious stones. That's great. Wood, hay, stubble. That's not good. What did he say in verse 13? Every man's work. Everybody's work is going to be made manifest. For the day shall declare it. Now, let me tell you, I've, I've studied this verse some years ago, many years ago, in fact, my first pastorate. So that's been nearly 40 years ago. I was doing a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians and came upon this verse. And I wanted to explain the verse. And it, this, this didn't really make much sense when you read this verse and the next verse together. In fact, just go ahead and read verses 13 and 14. Every man's work shall be made manifest. And 15. I'm sorry. Go ahead. For the day shall declare it. Uh-huh. Now, remember that. I want to say the day shall declare it. Now, everybody say the day shall declare it. The day shall declare it. Okay. Read. Because it shall be revealed by fire. Uh-huh. And the fire shall try every man's work. The of fire what sort is going is. to try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he If it abides, upon, he shall receive a reward. He's going to receive a reward. If any man's work shall but be burned. if the work is burned, he shall suffer loss. he'll suffer loss, but he himself shall but be he saved. he will be saved. Yet so as by fire. All right, so let's, let's talk about this. Because when I read this and I, I looked at the commentators, they said what this means is that even if a man preaches false doctrine, he's still going to be saved. And I said, no, 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 that, there's no way. Because Paul said if they're preaching false doctrine, they're cursed by God. That's what Paul said. That's not me being judgmental. That's what Paul said under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. That if they preach anything different than what the apostles preach, they're cursed of God. So, so there's no way that he says that to the church at Galatia, but the church at Corinth, he says, well, if, if they're preaching false doctrine, it's okay, they'll still be saved. That's not what he's saying. First of all, he's not talking about preaching. He's talking about the way we live our lives. Now, what, what gave me problems is because this term, the day shall declare it. And the commentators were saying that what this meant was the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, God's going to tell them that what you built with was wood, hay, and stubble. But you'll be saved anyhow. That's, that's not at all what Paul said. When Paul said the day shall declare it, the way that we would say it today is time shall tell. Time will tell. Time is either your best friend or your worst enemy. Do you hear me? It's either your best friend or your worst enemy. You know, if you know someone that's just a habitual liar, they just lie, 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 lie. Here's what I want to tell you. Hang on. Because time will tell. I had, a number of years ago, I had some very serious rumors that folks were spreading on me. You ever had that happen? It's not fun. 
not fun. I talked to my pastor, and he said, look, he said, you just keep being who you are. And he said, people are going to see after time that these rumors are not true. And you know, I actually had a man come and apologize to me. And he said those very words. He said, someone told me something about you, and I believed it. But he said, I've watched you for years now, and I see it's not true, and I'm sorry that I believed it. Now, he didn't even have to tell me that. I'm glad he did. But I'm telling you, time will either be your best friend or your worst enemy. Because had the rumors been true, time would have proven that. You just give it time. And that's what Paul's saying. Every one of us, everybody that comes into the church, you're building some kind of building on this foundation. Your life is some kind of building. And you're either using gold and silver and precious stones or you're using wood, hay, and stubble. And he said, here's what's going to happen. Everybody's going to go through the fire. Now think about this. Think about the analogy Paul's using. If you put gold through the fire, what happens to it? It's just made better. But if you put wood and hay and stubble through the fire, what happens to it? It gets consumed. And so what Paul's saying is everybody's going to pass through the fire. Everybody is going to have, as Peter said, fiery trials. But here's the thing. The fiery trial is not to destroy you. It's to expose whether you're building with wood, hay, and stubble or gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, it doesn't have to be exposed to God. It's got to be exposed to you. Because sometimes you think the way you're living your life is gold and silver and precious stones. And then the fire comes. And you look back and you say, um... Uh, wasn't the right way to do things. Right? That's what God was saying to Smyrna. You, you're building, but you're building with some things that are just going to have to be consumed, and I'm going to come along and consume those things. But you will be saved in the end. And saints of God, if we'll let God consume the wood, hay, and stubble in our life, and every one of us pick some up at some point or other, you hear what I said? I didn't get one amen out of that. Oh, got one from you. All right, thank you. I didn't hear you. See, this ear, this ear is plugged up over here, so I didn't hear you on this side. But listen to me. Everybody, everybody at some point in your life is going to build with wood, hay, and stubble. Everybody's going to pick some things up at some point. And God knows how to send the fire. My 
and how hot, boy, I feel this tonight, how hot the fire's got to get to consume that wood, hay, and stubble. And when he does, don't get bitter, don't get angry, don't wallow in self-pity. You need to lift your hands and say, thank you, God, that needed to be gone from my life. I'm glad you took it out. I'm glad you showed me it was not of value. Now let me find the gold and the silver and the precious stone that I need to put in his place. Listen to me. This is why sometimes we're, we're going through things and we're praying, God, get me out of this. God, fix this. God, solve this. God, take care of this. And he doesn't do it right away. And we think, well, he's just not listening or he doesn't care. No, you've got to understand that what you're asking God to do is to turn off the fire. Right. When he's trying to burn away some wood, hay, and stubble. Yes. Yes. Not in every case. Sometimes it is the devil. But if you've prayed, diligently prayed, sought God, and nothing changes, there's a good chance, Brother Nelson, that God started that fire. Because you put things in your life that he's not pleased with. And he wants the fire to expose it. Not so you can pick up another stack of wood. And unfortunately, that's what some people do. Some people just never learn. And God consumes the wood, hay, and stubble. And they just go find another pile of wood, hay, and stubble. And God consumes that, and they just find another pile. And they never get the clue. Uh... You need to try something else. This ain't working. I got to move on. I got to move on. We're going to need two parts to this summary. All right. Third church, Pergamos. Now, there's a few things about Pergamos. So let me go through these very quickly. Um, and then we'll deal with each of them, but I want to list them for you because, again, I'm trying to make this concise. I'm trying to just bring everything together. Um, Ephesus had a relationship problem. Smyrna had wood, hay, and stubble. Pergamos tolerated the doctrine of Balaam, which was offending your brother causing your brother to sin. And the church at Pergamos allowed that. They tolerated that. They also tolerated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which we've talked about basically was this licentious grace that consumes now, if you want to call me judgmental, go ahead. It doesn't matter. But it's a fact. This licentious grace consumes about 90% of Christianity today. What I, mean by, what I mean by licentious grace, it's this whole idea, well, you just live like you want to, grace will cover it. 
uh, we can have a homosexual pastor. Grace covers it. Oh, you're in adultery? Well, grace covers it. That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And God said he hates it. Now, Pergamos wasn't teaching it, evidently, but they were tolerating it. The pastor hadn't got up and said, this is the way we feel, but there were people within the church that felt that way and were obviously practicing that lifestyle. And God didn't want that tolerated. Listen to me. You know, this whole word tolerant, there are some things that there are some things God does not tolerate. There are some things God does not tolerate. I'll never get done if I don't hurry. So, two things. Two things about Pergamos. First of all, they tolerated the offenses to the brethren. We need to be careful not to offend our brother. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Put, put verse 12 back up there again. When you sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Who? That's strong. When you offend a brother or a sister, you sin against Christ. We need to be careful what we say to one another. We need to be careful how we treat one another. Now, not only did they tolerate offenses to the brethren, they tolerated the teachings of licentious grace. Grace, let me, let me address this. Grace is not a license to live as you please. It is the strength to live as God pleases. Let me show you something. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation. For, now wait, for what? For the grace of for God. For what? For the grace of God. For what? For the grace of God. Everyone say grace. Grace. Now listen to me. This is where all of this stuff comes in. Grace, grace, grace. That's unmerited favor. No, it is not. Come on now. Come on. There is no biblical definition that states grace means unmerited favor. The Bible says that Noah found Grace in the eyes of God. Does that mean he found unmerited favor? Oh, no. 
No, no, no. Noah was alone in preaching righteousness. That's what the Bible says. The Bible called him a preacher of righteousness. But the whole world was sinful. So don't tell me this was unmerited that God would choose Noah. Noah didn't find unmerited favor. What Noah found was God's strength to continue to stand for what was right, to build the ark, and to reach for the world. It was God's strength that he would not have had had God not imparted it divinely. That's what grace is. In fact, I don't have it listed here, but you can go to, to Paul's writings. He talked about his thorn in the flesh, and he said, I, I besought God three times to take it away. But God said this, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for my strength. Now, there's a biblical definition. God used grace and strength interchangeably, not grace and unmerited favor. I know I've just thrown a lot of people's minds for a loop because that's what you hear everywhere you go. That's the definition that's given. Unmerited favor, unmerited favor, unmerited but there's no Bible for that anywhere. The Bible defines grace as God's strength to perform His will. That's what grace is. Now, let's go back and look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What does grace do? Teaching us. Grace teaches us some things. What does it teach us? That denying ungodliness. That denying ungodliness. And worldly lusts. And worldly lusts. We should, we should live soberly, righteously, and, and godly in this present world. world. That doesn't sound like unmerited favor to me. Grace teaches us we got to live right. Grace teaches us we can't be like the rest of the world. Grace teaches us there are things God expects out of us. Well, hallelujah. No, we don't want to follow the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We don't want to adopt this idea of licentious grace. God will just cover whatever because he loves us. That's like saying, I love my children so much that if they want to play out in the street, I'll let them play in the street. That's not love. You know they're going to die in the street. You love them. You tell them, don't go out there. You set some guidelines. You establish some rules because you love them. So don't try to tell me God loves us so much he lets us do whatever we want. Permissiveness is not love. That's why, look, and, and 
But, but these couples who have a quote-unquote open marriage, they can carry on affairs and the other one doesn't care. I'm going to tell you, any couple that feels that way, they don't love each other. Love is not permissive. And furthermore, if you loved that other one, you wouldn't be having an affair. I said it. I got to move on. Church number four, Thyatira. I got six minutes to deal with three more churches. And that's only the negatives. So summary part two will have to be the positives. Church number four, Thyatira. Thyatira possessed the spirit of Jezebel. Now, what's the spirit of Jezebel? Well, we go back and look at Jezebel. We look at who she was. There's a couple things that the Bible specifically states about Jezebel. Number one, Jezebel, Jezebel is noted in the Scripture for trying to entice men through the application of makeup and jewelry and she loved the world. She loved the world. But something else about Jezebel, she was constantly trying to kill God's prophet. So she loved the world, but she hated the ministry. And the Bible says Thyatira had that spirit of Jezebel. So we're talking about the things we have to avoid. We've got to avoid the spirit of Jezebel. We cannot love the world. We're either going to love God or love the world, but we can't love both. Let me prove that to you. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Love not the world. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the if world, anybody loves the world, the love of the Father, the love of him. the Father is not in him. This is New Testament scripture. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle John said, "If you love the world, God's love does not reside in you." He goes on to say everything's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. Now, here's what I want to say. The Bible says if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And yet the Bible also says God so loved the world. Now, is that a contradiction? No. God so loved the world that he what? That he what? What's the next word? God so loved the world that he? That he? Yeah, God so loved the world, he gave. That's how God loved the world. He loved the world enough to sacrifice for it, to give to it. He didn't love the world for what he could get from it. So if the love of God is in our hearts, we're going to love the world enough to save them. But we don't love them to get from them what they have to offer. All right? So we have to, we, we cannot love the world, 
But part two of this is we have to love the ministry. For this is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave some apostles. Now wait, and he did what? He gave. He what? He gave. He gave. This is a gift from God. Apostles. And some prophets. Prophets. And some evangelists. Evangelists. And some pastors. Pastors and, and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints. And he did it to perfect you. For the work of the ministry. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying And to of the body build of up the body of Christ. How How's the body going to be built up? Through the ministry. How is the body going to be perfected through the ministry? We've got to learn to love this gift God has given us. Number five, Sardis. Sardis. The church at Sardis had a living name, but a dead faith. That's what God said about them. You have a name that you live. But you're dead. You see, what Sardis had was an improper perspective. You can't have faith if there's not some action behind it. James chapter 2, verses 17 through 26, lengthy reading. Bear with us. James 2, verses 17 through 26. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Mm Mm-hmm. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Uh Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Right, they don't believe in a trinity. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Some of you just let that slide right by. The devil does not believe in a trinity. (laughs) The devil believes in one God. The devil is oneness. The devil has stood before the throne of God. He knows how many are up there. He believes in one, and he trembles at the thought of that one. Mm -hmm. Someone said if he believed in three, he'd have a nervous breakdown. (laughs) All right. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Uh Uh-huh. When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought his, with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Faith was made perfect and by the, works. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed Abraham God. Abraham believed God. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Right. And he was called, he was the, called friend of God. the friend of God. Now, I've said this, I'm just going to throw it in, but this, this song, I am a friend of God, I am a friend of God, I am a friend of God, he calls me friend. That's not the right tune, but anyhow, whatever it is, there's a problem with that song because not everybody is a friend of God. Now, God is a friend to everybody. But just because God is our friend doesn't mean we're his friend. If everybody's God's friend, then this title that he gave to Abraham is really meaningless. So Abraham's the friend of God. So is everybody else. It's saying something about Abraham. To be called the friend of God meant Abraham was doing things to show he was God's friend. Your friends don't betray you. Your friends don't intentionally offend you. All right, all right, read on. 
You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. By works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot Rahab was a harlot, but she changed her works. When she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way, Whereas the body without the, the, body spirit, without is dead, the spirit is dead, so faith, faith without, without works, works is, dead, is also. dead also. Sardis, you say you've got a living faith, but you don't. You're dead. Put some works behind it. Get out there and do what you say you believe. Saints of God, if we believe Acts 2.38 is the only message, then let's get out here and act like it. Let's look at the rest of the world and say, hey, you need this message. I'm trying, I'm trying. I'm two minutes over. There are two churches left, but one of them we're going to deal with so quick because we're talking about the negatives now, the things that God condemned. The next church is Philadelphia. There was nothing God condemned about Philadelphia. So we move on to number seven. Number seven was Laodicea. And there was a lot God condemned about Laodicea, but I'm going to try to do this quickly. Boil it down to two main things. Laodicea was lukewarm. They were just mediocre. They weren't on fire, but they weren't cold either. And the other thing about Laodicea is they were very proud. They thought way too highly of themselves. So let's deal with these two things very quickly, and then I'll, I'll quit. Musicians can come. I'm, I've got two verses of Scripture here, and then we'll stop for tonight. First of all, they were just mediocre. They were lukewarm. I, I mentioned this in the lesson on Sunday, but it bears repeating in connection with this lesson. Let's read Luke 17, verses 9 and 10. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which were commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Listen, here's what Jesus said. He said, if a servant does what he's told to do, does the master just start thanking him? Oh, I appreciate you doing what I told you to do. No. The master expects obedience out of the servant. What the master commends and is thankful for is when that servant goes above and beyond what's required. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that we really have not become profitable to the kingdom of God if all we're doing is the bare minimum. Tell me what I got to do to be saved. That's all I need to know. And we're really not profitable to the kingdom of God. Until something stirs up in our heart which carries us back to the very first thing that we said tonight about what has to happen. And that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we fall in love with him, we don't want to just do what he commands. We want to please him. We want to go above and beyond the call of duty. Because we love him so much. And then the second thing we've got to avoid is we've got to avoid pride. And I want to tell you, pride takes on many forms. 
It's pride that keeps people out of an altar. It's pride that keeps people from living right when they know how they ought to live. It's pride that causes people to be willing to divide from other brothers and sisters because I'm right. You may be, but your attitude's wrong. Boy, it got quiet. To be proud is to bring God's resistance in our life. Listen to me. James 4, verse 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth, God the, proud, resisteth the proud. But giveth grace unto but the humble. Giveth grace unto the humble. God resists the proud. Come here, Brother Nelson. I want you to try to shake my hand right now. Try to shake my hand. I don't know if you can even see. Can you see? Can you see? Come over here and try to shake my hand. Try to shake my hand. You know what I'm doing? I'm resisting him. Try to hug my neck right now. Just, just try. You know what I'm doing? I'm resisting this hug. And let me tell you, this is what the Bible says. God resists the proud. So when we're proud and we come in and we throw our hands up, thank you, we throw our hands up to Jesus, do you know what Jesus is doing? He's resisting us. We don't have anything to be proud of. Right, right, right. Oh. I heard about a woman one time that went to the preacher after he got through preaching and she said, preacher, I want you to know you made me feel about this small. And he said, sister, that's still too big. We're nothing, saints of God. We are nothing. Glorified dirt. God scooped us up from the dust of the earth and fashioned us and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. What have we got to be proud of? Not one thing. And we sure don't have anything to be proud of when we stand in His presence. No flesh ought to glory in His presence. I don't want pride anywhere near me but especially when I come to the house of God. Let's stand and lift our hands to the Lord, everybody. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, let's reach out to the Lord. Let's reach out to the Lord. 
I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus.